Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We are impressed by demonstrations of God's power or the things he does through other lives, but he's saying, here's the ultimate issue of life. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name, as we read in Revelation, written in the book of life? And we're gonna see this theme again and again and again. Why? It is the ultimate issue. Happy Friday! In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part message from Pastor Sam entitled, The Ministry of Multiplication. We're in Luke chapter 9, looking at the first 27 verses of this chapter, and we will be considering Jesus sending out the twelve, feeding five thousand, and Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, among other things. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're looking at the first 27 verses, title of our study, The Ministry of multiplication. We read here in verse one, then he called his disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bread or bag nor bread nor money and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The latter part of chapter 8 concluded with Jesus demonstrating his power over nature, over demons, over disease, and finally over death. Now as we get into chapter 9, we see him delegating that power and authority to his disciples that they could go forth preaching the kingdom, preaching the gospel, healing, casting out demons, doing the very things that Jesus had been doing and had chosen them to do. What's he doing? He's multiplying his ministry. And because people had to come to him, he realizes as we must, well, as he trains up the 12 and sends them out, well, they can minister to far more people in each of those areas than can come to him in the area he's in. A little later in chapter 10, we'll find him calling 70 to himself, empowering them and sending them out as well. So Jesus was into and is into the ministry of multiplication. We read in Acts that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. But we also know at the same time he was multiplying those he had called to serve. And certainly we follow in his footsteps as we set our goal on serving him. Well, we have a short diversion as we move away from this story of him sending them out. We come back to it, but, but we move over to a guy named Herod the Tetrarch. Now, he is one of the sons of a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great, by the way, a legend in his own mind, named himself Herod the Great. And then what he does is, well, he's not a real secure 
poor guy. This is a guy that, that if he had a son who was brilliant, he would murder him because he couldn't have anyone smarter than him living in the house. If he had a son who had real leadership qualities, he would have him murdered because he didn't want to risk that his son might take over and usurp his authority. And so here's what happens. He wipes out this son and that son and this son. Well, here, what do you end up with? All of the idiots. That, that is really what happened to him. He murders everybody who had anything going for him. And he has these sons who are so, well, they're like him, only worse. And so uh, that's Herod the Tetrarch. By the way, Herod the Great, responsible for the murder, the massacre of all those little babies, as he had told the wise men at Jesus' birth, hey, come back. I want to worship Worship him too. He had a bit of a warped sense of what it was to worship. His idea of worshiping Jesus would be to murder Jesus. And because he couldn't get to Jesus or figure out which one was Jesus, well, he wipes out this whole community of young children in an attempt, a vain attempt, to destroy this one who had threatened him, though he was just a baby. Well, now we come to his son. This is the guy that had imprisoned John the Baptist. Why? Because John had st stood up and said, repent, you cannot take your brother's wife. Philip was ruling in a nearby area and he was married to a, guy, a gal named Herodias. And, uh, you know, Herod liked Herodias. Herodias liked Herod. They both were married. They just left their spouses, moved in together and started uh, spending, uh, you know, all the rest of their time together. Well, long story short, John rebukes him and Herod arrests John. Later, John actually will be decapitated over this whole thing. And it's a horrible story in and of itself. But, but this just gives you a bit of an idea who this guy is and what he's about. Well, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, verse 7, and he was perplexed. I'd suggest beyond perplexed. That just means really confused and agitated. I think he was paranoid. It says it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Now, Herod is the one who started this rumor. And it's one of the silliest things that anybody ever said about Jesus. There were various opinions, as we're about to read, concerning who he might be. But anyone could have checked it out. He was a contemporary of John the Baptist. They were born just a few months apart. They were cousins. Anyone could have gained that information. And so here's perplexed and paranoid and superstitious Herod. And he knows he's taken an innocent man's life and wiping out John the Baptist. And so he hears of all the miracles Jesus is doing. And he thinks, oh, this must be John risen from the dead. Here's an irony for you. We're told that John did no miracles, but everything he spoke of this man referring to Jesus was true. John wasn't a miracle worker. He was a man called to call others to repentance. Jesus comes on the scene. He's doing all sorts of miracles as we've been studying together. Well, in any case, some thought he was John because when the leader says something stupid, all the people dumber than him follow him and say what he says. Some said that Elijah had appeared. This actually made some sense. Here's why. Malachi prophesied, last book of the Old Testament, 400 years earlier, that, that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, here's the problem. Jesus 
came the first time, not a problem to us, but a problem to them. He came the first time to suffer and die for our sins and he'll come again to rule and reign. But they never saw two comings. Someone has suggested it's like first coming and second. There are these mountaintops with this huge valley that we're living in in between. And when they saw the first and second coming, that's all they saw. And so they didn't really put together that well, this was his first coming. In any case, they asked John, are you Elijah? And he said, no. They start thinking, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah because they knew it was time for the Messiah to appear. Well, Elijah, great miracle worker of the Old Testament, it made some sense. And of course, Jesus wasn't Elijah. Elijah, by the way, will still be coming. Why? All of the other Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled literally, so the rest must be fulfilled literally as well. Well, some said he was John. That's just silly. Some said he was Elijah. That made some sense. Further investigation would, of course, show that, well, no, he was not Elijah, but he was the one. Elijah is going to come before, but that will be his second coming. Herod said, John, I beheaded. Who is this? I hear of these things. Oh, others said he is one of the prophets that had risen again. Now, this made some sense, too. Moses says that the Lord would raise up another like unto him. And of course, Moses was the great deliverer of the people. So they were looking for a prophet who would come and deliver the people. And Jesus certainly looked like someone who had the potential to do those things. Well, in any case, Herod's freaking out. John, I beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He will have an audience, by the way, with Jesus. It's about three years out at this point. But, but when he meets up with them, he will be the only one that we have any record of to whom Jesus will have nothing to say. He doesn't respond to him. Herod asks questions. Jesus just stares him down. And I'm thinking, I mean, I've been stared down by Pam and it freaked me out. And, uh, and here's the creator of the universe staring you in the face and not saying a word to you. What a creepy and awesome, awesome thing that must have been. Well, Anyway, there is something else rather interesting here. You know, the Old Testament says that the wicked flee, though no one pursues. And Herod fits that bill perfectly. But that same verse goes on to say, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's a picture of John the Baptist for us. We see the contrast of these two. This guy with all the power and all of the authority and all the pomp and, and he's living in the palace. But he's scared to death of, of what might happen, of how his power might be taken from him. We have John who lives out in the desert, eats wild locust and honey. He's just, you know, he has no power. He has nothing except for the power and authority that comes from God. It turns out he's very secure, very sure of himself, willing to lay down his life for the one he came to point people to, and we'll see before we get through all this. Well, he says it even here, that had already happened. John, I've beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to hear him. Well, verse 10 says the apostles, when they returned, we go from this little interlude back to the mainstay of our story. They told them all they 
had done. Now, I like this because it's like they come back and they're all excited. Hey, even the demons are subject to us. He'll send out 70, by the way, as he continues. And I made mention of this, this ministry of multiplication. And when they come back, they return with joy, saying just that, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus responds to them saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He's saying there's something more important than the obvious that would impress us. I mean, we are impressed by demonstrations of God's power or the things he does through other lives. But he's saying, here's the ultimate issue of life. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name, as we read in Revelation, written in the book of life? And we're going to see this theme again and again and again. Why? It is the ultimate issue. Are we sure that we're in Christ Jesus? Are we sure that we belong to him? Well, he takes them aside privately in the latter part of verse 10 into a deserted place belonging to a city called Bethsaida. And when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. We see here again, Jesus' priority. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God. Why? Because he knows what we need to be sure of, that the spiritual issues are always the most important because they affect us eternally. But Jesus did minister to their physical needs. If they were demon-possessed, he cast them out. If they were infirm, he healed them. And, and so we see him preaching and teaching because, well, he wanted them to know the kingdom of God was in their midst, that the kingdom of God had come, that the king was there with them. And then he ministers to their physical needs. And we find he's even concerned about their nutrition. And, and because of that, we get to see his resourcefulness as he demonstrates and exposes and then expands the disciples' limited expectations. What's happening here? Jesus is going to meet the people's need. He is going to increase his disciples' faith and he's going to show them with him nothing will be impossible. Well, the day began to wear away. Verse 12, the 12 came to him and said, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. The disciples, so much like us. They get together, they survey the situation. They say, well, what do you think we should do? Okay, let's go tell them. They actually come to the Lord and advise the Lord on what they think would be a good course of action to deal with the crisis at hand. Now, the thing they did right is they came to the Lord. The thing they did wrong, and I've heard it in many prayer meetings, they begin to instruct the Lord on what he ought to do to deal with the issue. And these guys are a true committee in every sense of the term. You know what a committee is, right? It's a group who individually can do nothing and together decide nothing can be done. That's the disciples. They're like, okay, we've looked at the situation, send them away so they can fend for themselves. What does Jesus say in response? You give them, verse 13, something to eat. Now, 
they already know there's no way they can feed this hungry multitude. It says 5,000. It's 5,000 men plus women and children. So depending on the ratios and, well, we have about two thirds to, uh, to you know, the, the ratio of adults. We have, when we add the kids, there are about two thirds as many kids as there are adults. So if, if it were anything like that there, we got some serious amount of hungry mouths in this multitude. And, and Jesus is going to tell them to do the impossible. And then he's going to show them again with him, nothing is impossible. Now, you may or may not be aware, this is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels. And there's a very good reason I believe he put this one in all. And, and one reason is in the first century, they couldn't get a copy of the scripture as we have. They didn't even have all four gospels in any given fellowship. If you had the gospel of Luke in your fellowship, you would have that thing chained and guarded and protected. I mean, this would be your fellowship's most prized possession. It's hard for us to imagine because, you know, we have multiple Bibles and we have computer programs with Bibles. I mean, there's a Bible program I just got a notice for my Blackberry. You want to, I can hardly read my emails. I don't think the Bible's going to work on it. But, but the idea is we have so much access to the Bible, we can't imagine a world where they didn't. When we were in D.C., one of the things we got to see was the first pocket Bible. And you get a kick out of this. This is the size of my Bible. The first pocket Bible was about a third bigger than this. And you wonder, why did they call it a pocket Bible? Because the only Bibles they had before that were called pew Bibles. Or not pew Bibles, they were pulpit Bibles. And a pulpit Bible, well, it was bigger than this, this music stand that I'm putting my pocket Bible on. And so it's this just huge huge Bible. And they actually chained those Bibles to the pulpits. Why? Because again, it was their congregation's most prized possession. And so when you realize that, well, not only do you get a little historical background, but all of a sudden you realize, hey, this idea, have it in Matthew. Make sure it's in Mark. Make sure we get it in Luke. Make sure we get it in John. Why? Jesus wants to make sure that wherever a gospel is read, this story is presented and it is so practical for us. There are so many things that that will minister to our hearts. Well, the disciples, as we often have, survey the situation. They conclude there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus tells them to do the impossible. You give them something to eat. And they begin to say, well, we've kind of surveyed what we have. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now, one of the other gospel writers says that would be about three quarters of a year's wages. If they had that kind of money, they'd still have to go. And then how do you get the food there and distribute it to everyone? So they're just saying, this is like pretty daunting, Lord. There were about 5,000 men. And he says to his disciples, verse 14, make them sit down in groups of 50. They did so and made them all sit down. Now, I'm reminded here and I want you to be reminded that our job is this simple. We trust the Lord and we demonstrate that trust by obeying the Lord. Put another way, we have faith in the Lord and we demonstrate our faith by obeying the Lord. That's our part. What's his part? He does all the miracles. He does all the big stuff. He tells them to feed the people. There's no way they can, but what they can do is say, okay, Jesus wants everyone to sit down. So everybody sits down. Well, now what? 
Now Jesus has to come through. And again and again, he puts them in positions where they can't make it happen so that they'll realize, hey, we're with Jesus. Jesus is with us. He can make it happen. And by the way, they are going to do exactly what he told them to do. Feed the hungry multitudes. You give them something to eat. But they're not expected to work a miracle to make that happen. And I want to encourage you that, that God isn't expecting you to work miracles to make things happen. He just wants you to trust him and obey him and then watch him do his part. Well, he took the five loaves, the two fish, looking up to heaven, verse 16, he blessed and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and the 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. The key word as far as their personal experience is filled. It's actually glutted. It, it, you experience it when you go to a smorgie. You rarely leave saying, oh, I'm glad I ate just enough. You're like, I can't believe I ate that much. And, and that's really this group, see? They don't know where the next meal's coming from and they weren't even sure this one was gonna happen. So everyone ate all they could, all they needed and more. And there were 12 baskets left over. What's our Lord teaching the disciples? That he can provide for the hungry multitudes, that he can provide for them, and that they just need to look to him and trust in him and then just obey him. Well, another demonstration of power. And it's also a wonderful picture for us of how God prepares us to be used by him. The application for us individually and corporately is this. In order for God to use me, to use you, to use us, and certainly he's chosen us to use us. He blesses us and he wants us to know we are a blessed people. But his intention is that others would be blessed because they know us and we know him. They connect with us, they get to see him. Well, here's the picture. He blessed, he broke, and he gave. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings and I've heard, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless my family, bless our fellowship, bless our country. Nothing wrong with praying that, by the way, unless what we mean by blessing is, could I get a new car and a bigger house and could I make more money? And I mean, all those things might be good for you or not. But if what we consider blessings and what we're praying for in blessings is just stuff selfishly we would want, even if we weren't Christians, I'm wondering if that's really something he's going to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm way into that. The, the, the reality is we're already blessed. So when we're praying for blessing, we really should be asking, Lord, use me to bless others in your name. If you are a believer in Jesus, most of you claim you are. I take you at your word. Only God knows, of course, only God can see our hearts. But if you claim to be a believer, you need to know you are exceedingly blessed. You've been chosen. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. You've been anointed and empowered. There's a call on your life, a place in the body of Christ. And now you get to go represent Jesus. What do you need to do that? Well, there are a few things. We'll see it as we get to the end of this study. But, but one thing that we've already touched on is, is we need to trust him and we need to obey him. And, and so he blesses us when we realize without him, we can do nothing. They realize that. They, there's no way they can meet the need. But 
I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That's the testimony of Paul. And that's the experience of these disciples. They can be used by God to distribute what he has blessed and what he's broken. I often imagine what it must have been like to be there, watching Jesus do the things he did. In all of the years that I have been in ministry, the greatest miracle I have seen is the miracle of God actually using me for anything. But I have seen the gifts of the Holy Spirit used over and over again in my life and in the lives of those that I have served with. And when you see this happen, it truly is a miracle to watch God work through ordinary people like us. I would have you consider what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12:11 about how the Holy Spirit goes about distributing these gifts that we use to minister to each other. It says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. As the Holy Spirit wills. That is the key here. Being led by the Spirit and not by our flesh is the most important thing that we can do if we are going to find ourselves gifted and used by God. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.